Well, thank you for sharing that. I trust that um, you might take advantage of hearing more about their trip. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to open the scripture together. A couple of things before we open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, first off, there's a couple of very important um, days that are happening this week. Uh, the first one is, uh, you might see this in your bulletin, Ivan and Rika DeYoung are celebrating 70, that's seven with a zero, years of marriage this week. That doesn't, yeah, thank you. That's just a measure of God's grace to see a marriage go for that many years. What a blessing. Not to be outdone, though, we have um, this week Ron and Catherine Strait, who are celebrating 68 years of marriage this week. Amen. Those are numbers you don't hear all that often, especially in the day and culture in which we live. And so if, if you know them, if you don't, maybe, maybe get their address, send them a card this week, congratulate them, and thank them for giving such an incredible picture of the gospel at work in their life as they have committed to oneness for so many years. Um, also, uh, congratulations are to Ka uh, Kayla and Gabe Vantland, who had a baby boy this week. So we're just... So many great things, so many great things. God, God is good, God is good. First Peter chapter three is where we are going to be today and I'd like to invite you to stand with me. We're gonna read verses 13 through 22 together. First Peter chapter three. Uh, I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Version uh, in case it's different than yours, you at least know where I'm coming from. Verse 13, and who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused... Those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, or at that time, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God." through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Amen? Pray with me, please. God, your word is incredible. Your word is living and it is breathing. It speaks to us today and it challenges us in how we walk and in how we live and God, as we study your word, give us focus, give us discernment, give us insight. Help us to know you better through the pages of the text. For your glory, for your sake, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I remind you, uh, Pastor Clint and his family and a group of folks from here this weekend are down in Johnny and Friends this week uh, serving down there. So as you think about them, pray for them. I know he is praying for you. We're going to dive in this morning. And this is an interesting uh, passage. It's, it's a long passage. It's a full passage. And the message is simple, but it's hard. Okay? It's, it's both things at the same time. The message is simple, but it is hard. Here's the big idea for your day. Do good even if you suffer for it. Really easy, really hard. Do good even if you suffer for it. We're going to talk about what it means to do good as God has called things good. Um, But as we go in here, it's helpful to remember where we are. We're in the gospel, or not the gospel, we're in the letter that Peter writes to the people in what are now modern-day Turkey. And he has already called them in chapter 2. He's called them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This is quite, quite, a, quite a list there. And there are people belonging to God for a purpose, that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. They have a purpose to their life. Which is interesting because they're essentially a group of migrant workers trying to find their identity in a land that's really not their own, in a land that's filled with all this kind of junk, and yet they're called to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who serve God so that people, when they see them, would see God. That's, that, that's what they're there for. And so they have an easy message, but a hard message. How do you do good even when you suffer for it. Because in the time here and in the times to come, they're going to suffer for the name of Christ. So we find ourselves in this story, and and we find ourselves there easily because it's hard to do good sometimes, especially when we experience um, suffering for it. Um, Think of marriage. Think of parenting. Think of work. Think of school. All of these areas, life in general, presents us with the opportunity to do good and to do evil. To do what honors God, to do what dishonors God. And yet we're placed in the middle and say, which one shall I choose? And if it were not for the grace of God, we could not choose what is good. I love how Peter describes, and he bookends the book. I noticed this this week for the first time. Um, In in chapter 1, he says... The the letter calls God's people to set their hope, how's it finished? To set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set their hope, that was the whole gird up their loins passage, if you remember from a few weeks ago. Set their hope on God's grace. And if, as if he didn't want them to forget that, in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I've written this letter to you through Sylvanus to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. And then he says this, he says, take your stand in it. Don't stand anywhere else except for the grace of God because that is the only way all of what I've told you can be lived out. So we stand here, we sit here, in your case, in the grace of God. It is because of the grace of God that we are here. And so Peter is going to continually tell his hearers, do good, do good, even when you suffer for it. 
because their world is in desperate need of people who embody the goodness of God for their sake. Now, while, this, while these believers have hope, their hope is secure, and it's because not of their circumstances, it's because of God's saving work, and that will also be in our passage today. And I think if Peter were here, Peter might say something like this. Hey, friends, beloved, if he were to say that, he'd say, do good, even if you suffer for it, because I want your goodness to lead, or I want my goodness to come through you in order that when people see you, they may know Christ. He might even say it like this way, I want you as you know me, I want you to make Christ known. I want you to make Christ known. And so we are going to begin, we're going to do something I don't normally do. Uh, we're going to begin at the end, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. And there's a method for the madness. Um, as, as I've been studying for this, I, I, I like to listen to other preachers. And one of my favorites, um, very prominent preacher in, in the States, he tackled this whole passage in three weeks. We will not be here for three weeks. I guarantee you I will let you go in the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, so. So some of the depths to which this passage goes, we're not going to go there just for the sake of time. But you can feel free to ask your, your adult Bible connections leaders, or, or you can come talk to me about any questions you have, and we can engage about the text. But we're going to start in verse 18. And it kind of hinges on verse 17. So, so 17 says, for it is better, and this is kind of a nice summative statement, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. And then he goes into giving an example. Why would you do that? And he says this. He says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, that he might bring, or the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So he gives as the reason here, because Christ has suffered. You suffer because you have seen the one whom you hold all allegiance and all adoration to. You have seen him suffer. So therefore, suffer. And then it just gets more interesting. And then he, he, he begins to say that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshy realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. And then he goes into these series of pictures. So the first picture I want you to understand is Christ's sacrifice. And I actually have a picture that I had Paula. Okay, that just kind of helps us visually stay here, okay? Christ's sacrifice is the first picture Peter wants his hearers to see. The second picture he wants them to see is this picture of an ark, okay? And you're like, where does the ark come in? Follow me. <laughs> we, we, we dive deeply here. Um, so he says, in that state, he also went, made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. You can ask me about that later. We're not going to go into that in, de in detail. Who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So you might say, well, why are we talking about Noah? One commentator draws some nice parallels between the culture at the time of Peter's writing was one of very anti-God. The time and the culture of the time of the ark was very anti-God. If you go back and you read Genesis 6 and 7, it's very anti-God. But, but notice what it says, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited. He waited so that some might hear Noah speaking. In the text it says that Noah is a herald of righteousness. So, so that they might hear Noah speaking. God's patience is so great that he does not want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance, even though all do not come to repentance. Second Peter goes in that direction a little bit. So he, he has this picture of Christ's sacrifice once for all. 
There's no other way that you can be saved. There's no other way that I can be saved other than Christ. No person, no right, no formula brings salvation to the world. It's only through Christ. And then he goes to this picture of an ark. The ark is a great picture of that which saved Noah. God brought or God told Noah to build this ark, but if you look at the text, it says God essentially carried that ark all the way to its resting place, bringing salvation to Noah and to the seven other people on board. And so then he gets another picture here, uh, the end of verse 20, end of verse 20, and that in it a few, that is eight people, which were saved through water. Then he goes to this third picture. He goes, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, if you were to stop there, it would get really confusing because you'd begin to think that baptism somehow saves you. This is a, an, an ancient mikvah. This is an old baptistry place, okay? Um, but if you keep reading, you know that's not the case. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And he says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge or the appeal of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, he, he's not contradicting what he said earlier. The only way that you are saved is because of Christ's death and his resurrection. That's the only way. But he's giving you these pictures. This picture of an ark that God carried through. And this picture of baptism is, is a strong one. Um, water does not save anyone. Think about the flood for a moment. Water didn't save anyone. It was God who saved people from the judgment that came because of, or through the water, not because of the water, but through the water. And the picture of baptism here symbolizes the life that has died to sin and that has been made to life because of Christ. In essence, we are saved not because of water, we're saved through the water. Because even as we baptize people, we say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture that God has redeemed them from an old way of living. But notice what he says. It says, baptism signifies the pledge, the, the quote, pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word conscience here is an important word. If you were to go to, to Hebrews 9, for example, David, do you have that scripture? It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, next one, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through, eternal, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? You and I, we're once dead in our transgressions and sins, but we were made alive because of Jesus. And baptism is a picture that helps make that come alive. That's why we baptize only when someone has demonstrated in, by, by their testimony their faith in Christ. And so there's a lot more we could talk about there. There's numerous commentaries about, or not commentaries, there's numerous pages about what does it mean spirits in prison and all this kind of stuff. Let's talk later about that, okay? For this morning, I just want you to see the pictures. Saved because of Christ's atoning work, the picture of the ark, salvation from sin, bringing, bringing Noah and his family out, baptism as a picture of, of God saving you through his son. And then it comes to this culminative statement. 
verse 22. He says, now that he has gone into heaven, he is at the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So you get this picture at the end that Christ rules and reigns over all. He rules and reigns over sin and death. He rules and reigns over suffering. He rules and reigns over everything in this world. And that should give us hope. In fact, it does give us hope. So that's kind of the why, all right? I hope you follow that a little bit because I want to go now to verse 13. Because you have to say, all right, why did he say all that? What is he calling me to? It's really important to ask, why is that there? Why do I need to know that? But then it's important to ask, what should I do as a result of the scripture? There's the kind of the explanation. You do this because Christ suffered and he gave you an example and he has saved you and all this kind of stuff. And then verse 13, he says, and who will harm you since Christ, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter, and who will harm you if you are deeply committed to doing what is good? He, he's going to talk about conduct here, how we live our lives. Um, I remind you, all of this comes from God's grace. There's a great word picture in here. He's just a couple, a couple uh, verses before that been quoting Psalm 34, and, and he's said uh, the phrase, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies. Let him turn from evil, do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. So as he juxtaposes good and evil here, he says, who will harm you if you're deeply committed, or maybe your translation has zealous. I think ESV is zealous. Zealous for what is good. And he's asking kind of a rhetorical question here, because if you and I have experienced good, you're like, yeah, oh man, that was so great to experience good. We'll talk about good in just a minute. But yeah, why would you harm someone if they're doing what's good? Isn't that what you want? But even Peter, later, uh, actually in the next sentence, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. The word zealous here, or my translation says deeply committed, pulls on a word that is used to describe a, a certain type of Jew, all right? So some of you know who the Pharisees are, right? Any, any people know who Pharisees are in the Bible? Confidence, okay, a couple of you. How about the Sadducees? Okay, you, you guys know Sadducees, all right. Um, how many of you know about like the Essenes? Heard that name before? All right, a couple of you, very good. So one of the ones are Zealots. How many of you have heard of Zealots before? All right, we've got a couple of people who have heard of Zealots before. He uses the word zealot to describe how he wants his hearers to do good. Now, the zealots, for those of you who don't know, which is perfectly fine, that's why we're here. The zealots were the extreme wing of the Pharisees, all right? They, they were ones who were devoted so much so to their beliefs that they were all in, no matter the cost, even if it included dying for what they believed. All right? They were all in to the end. And when Peter is telling his hearers to do good, he says, I want you to be in it to the end. Don't hold back. All in. Be zealous for doing good. All right? That's kind of the part of the picture that is going on there. He does not want them to hold back any energy whatsoever. And so as I was reading this a couple weeks ago, this word good kept popping up. It actually happens eight times in chapter three alone. And so I figured it was worthy to, to look at this and to try and help put some meat to the word good. So the word good 
is the word agathos. Can you say that with me? Agathos. Very good. That's actually that's pretty good. Agathos. One more time. Agathos. David, would you put up the... There we go. So, the passion for doing good. Agathos means useful or beneficial. All right? It means useful or beneficial. And it has the idea of doing that which pleases God. All right? That's kind of the biblical background to it. It's not, it's not just what I think is good. It's doing good. Uh, it, it means doing, doing good means that which pleases God. So his whole letter, Peter's been saying, be holy, do this, do this. This pleases me. This is how you live as a called out people. Do what pleases God. He says, do what is good. Do what is useful. Do what is beneficial. Um, sometimes uh, you see the struggle with stop up there. I was thinking earlier this week, I like to say stop a lot. Like, like when, my, when my youngest son goes for the stairs, I'm like, stop, don't do that. Or a uh, number of uh, situations I can think of where I say, stop, don't do that, no. But in the text, it usually says, turn from evil and do good. It's not, it's not just saying, don't do that. It's saying, do this instead, which is important because you can get stuck in this a lot. You can, you can be on stop, and you can be on good, or go, and you can have a lot of gray land out here. God wants you to move towards good, not stay over here, not stay over here. He wants you to move towards good. So, beneficial, useful, and a couple things I want you to see about the word good. Sometimes it's used as an adjective, sometimes it's used as, as more of like a verbal tense, but it's, it comes originally from God. I, I told you this morning, just even in the scripture reading, Psalm 100 says this. It says, for the Lord is good. If you go and you look up the word good, you find numerous experiences of it. For the Lord is good. Goodness comes from God. It's a, it's a very part of his nature. Jesus even kind of hints at this when he says in Mark chapter 10, he says, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. So when we become about people who do good, we have to recognize first that good comes from God. But we also need to recognize that good represents something that's within us, something that God has placed in there. In other words, you can do, you can do things that may look good, but what God cares first and foremost about is the heart. Notice uh, verse 15 of 1 Peter 3. He says, but honor or sanctify the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. You might ask, why in your hearts? If it's in here, it will come out. If it's in here, it will come out. Good reflects the inner attitude of the heart. So in Luke, for example, um, Jesus, I believe, is the one who's saying this. He says, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Good does not come from you thinking, I just have to do good. Good comes from receiving the goodness of God into your life and being an agent that God works through to be good. Does that make sense? Okay, a little bit. All right. Thank you for those of you who nodded. Appreciate it. So, this ties to the next point. God brings good to us. So develop that, that statement just a little bit. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 7. 
He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. We sang that this morning. You are good, you are good when there is nothing good in me. Because we have to be reminded that before Christ, man, we were hopelessly lost. There was nothing good in me. And, and here Paul qualifies, because he's in Christ. He says, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so you go down a couple verses later, and he says, who will deliver me? And he says, thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. All right? There's only one way you and I can do good, and that's through Christ working through us. That's by putting our stake and standing in the grace that God wants to give you and the grace that God wants to give me for doing good. So if we just kind of keep looking at the word good here, we could look at this for a while, but we'll just take a few more. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, one of the ways that we know that which is good, if we're looking at it like, is this good or is this not good, is we look at the text. We look at the text. Uh, I don't have this one in your slides, but Romans 7 talks about how the law of God, the Torah of God, is holy, righteous, and good. But you may know this one. Second Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, correction, rebroof, and all that kind of stuff. That the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. You want to know what good is? You want to know how to walk in good? Know the text. That's how you know that which is good. That's how when you look at your life, you can say, is this good or is this not? Hmm, what does the text say? Ah, okay, I need to go here. <laughs> this is good, by the way, just to keep our directions straight. Um, finally, uh, John says in his third gospel, we could look at several more, but this one's great. He says, beloved, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This is in part, when, when Peter talks about this, this is why he banks on, for Christ also suffered for our sins. It's because without Christ, doing good is really impossible. Really, really impossible. God calls you and I to do good only when we stand, only by standing in his grace. And so, it's dangerous because when you continue studying on Saturday night, you keep reading and stuff, you come up with more passages that I have to share with you. Here's one more that's not on the screen. Micah chapter 6 says this, and this is kind of oh, so good. It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. You know it. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's such a challenging statement, especially when you consider sometimes we suffer for doing good. And yet the text continually calls us to act justly, love mercy, love, uh, the word there is um, chesed, grace, love mercy, love grace. Um, walk humbly with God. Now, one of the things Peter is addressing is sometimes when you do good, you suffer for it. 
And there's two kinds of suffering that William Barclay points out in his commentary. He, he says, you can suffer because of your humanity. That's one way of suffering. The second one is you can suffer because of your Christianity. You can suffer because of your faith. Peter's more directly addressing number two here. We, we all face suffering because of our humanity, but only people who live out their faith experience the second. Be, because of our Christianity, because of our trust in Jesus, sometimes people experience suffering. And so Peter wants to directly address that. And he says, keep doing what's good. Keep doing what is good, even if you suffer for it. And this isn't a message that Peter has never heard before. If you think back to the Gospels and you maybe think back to, um, to the book of Matthew, Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then Jesus teaches, Peter amongst others, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, even when you face suffering and persecution because of your faith. One of the things we learn is that blessing is not tied to feeling or experience. Finding the blessing of God is, is finding joy and happiness when we do the good that he has called us to do, regardless of the cost. Some in this room have experienced that. Some of you might be experiencing that today. As you think about it, Peter has some more words for you. He says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. And then right here in the middle of verse 14, he's going to begin a very long sentence. If you're in the ESV, I believe it is all one long sentence to the end of verse 16. But I want you to follow the train of thought if you don't have an ESV. There. He says, do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. So, so if you suffer for it, he says, don't fear. And he's actually quoting a passage from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, Isaiah is facing a very challenging time. He has said, Lord, here I am, send me. And then a couple chapters later, the people of Israel, the have, well, the people of Israel, because it's split right now, Israel has already gone and basically forsaken God for a time. And then Judah is going that way as well. And in the middle of this, um, God wants Isaiah to remain strong. Isaiah 8:11 says that, that God tells Isaiah this message to keep him from going the way of his people. The way of the people is this. The people are fearing the coming of the Assyrians. The people are fearing the king of, uh, the king of Syria. The people are fearing the king of Israel. I'm talking about Judah. They're the ones fearing. And, and God tells Isaiah, don't go that way. Don't do that. Don't call everything an alliance these people say is an alliance, Isaiah 12 says. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be terrified. How many times when you've been in a really difficult spot have you become terrified? A few times, right? Terrified. He says, don't, don't be terrified. Don't fear what they fear. But then he has, so, so there's the stop. If you just want to say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, then he says this, next, uh, next verse, David. You are to regard only the Lord of hosts as holy. In other words, when you feel like it's really, really tough, here's what you do. You honor the name of God. 
regardless of the cost. This is what Peter is picking up on. Only he should be feared, only he should be held in awe. Peter says it this way, don't be do not fear what they fear in verse 14, or be disturbed, or be disturbed. To be disturbed means to be tossed or troubled or disturbed. It implies emotional turmoil, okay? Honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. The other way you could translate this is sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I went to a, a country a few months ago, and we did some teaching there. And one of the things that we taught was the, uh, the disciples' prayer from, from the Sermon on the Mount. And this phrase pops up there as well. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Except it sounds like this. It says, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or, translated differently, may your name be sanctified. And so we talked about there, what does it mean to sanctify the name of Christ? Well, may your name be sanctified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To sanctify God's name means to do God's will as he has taught us here on earth as it is done in heaven. The word sanctify here is an imperative, by the way. It's not a choice. It's, it's do it. <laughs> do it. You know, when, when you're fear, when you're having, experiencing fear, don't be tossed around. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he continues on in the sentence, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. And he says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Many of you have memorized that text, and that is such a great text to memorize, but know that it comes in the middle of the sentence. The beginning of the sentence is do not fear. Don't fear what they fear or be disturbed, honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts, always be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, keeping your conscience clear. That's part of the sentence, and it keeps going. To say, where is it? Conscience clear. So that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. Peter is essentially saying you're going to experience people who denounce your Christian life, and you're going to have a choice at that moment, what are you going to do? Are you going to sanctify the name of Christ, or are you not? <laughs> what are you going to choose? He wants you to walk in the way which is good. Seek peace, pursue it. Because when people see your actions, then oftentimes they say, why are you doing this? Sometimes they don't say it like this. Some, so, sometimes they say it like, help me understand, why are you doing that? Sometimes they say, why are you doing this? You may have experienced both, like people who are honestly inquiring, people who are frustrated because they see you act in ways that honor God and they don't understand it. Maybe it even makes them frustrated. But when they ask you, Always be ready to give an apologia, is the Greek word there, a defense that includes a logos or a message or a word. When someone asks you why you do good, even when you experience suffering for it. I love this quote by William Barclay. He says, our faith must be a firsthand discovery, not a secondhand story. Our faith must be a firsthand discovery not a second-hand story. When people look at you, they see someone who's wrestling through what it means to do good even when you suffer for it. 
And as you share your story with them, it becomes firsthand. It becomes down in your bones, something that you have experienced, and that makes the testimony that you give even more powerful. He says, though, he adds another qualifier, still in the sentence, uh, in verse uh, 16. Uh, end of verse 15 says, for the hope that is within you, verse 16 says, however, there's a way you should do this. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. In other words, if you are asked, why are you acting this way? Don't do it arrogantly or with pride. Don't do it out of spite. Don't do it out of guilt. Say, with gentleness and with humility, and respect, even to someone who may, who you feel like may not even deserve that humility and that gentleness and respect. He says, give a, give a reason. Give a reason. And Peter's building this case all through that it's because of the grace of God that you can actually be good. And so part of your reason is that because Jesus lives in me, I want his life to live through me. How you share your reason for hope matters is the point. How you share your reason for hope matters. A saint, it ha as it has been said, is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. When people look at your life, do they see you or do they see Jesus in you? I suggest to you, if they see you, Jesus is becoming a little fuzzy. <laughs> but if they look at you and they're like, I just don't, I just don't get it then they begin to have eyes to see that, that God has loved you and God has loved me and that God wants to live through you and me and that we care so much about this that we're willing to take a loss for it. When people, oh, I have this phrase. I don't know where I heard this, but I love the phrase, it's hard to argue with a life that is well lived. I think about that when I think about my parents, when I think about my grandparents, uh, all, all people who love the Lord, it's hard to argue with a life that's well-lived. When you see kindness, which I saw all the time from them, it's hard to argue with that. When you see generosity, it's hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with a life well-lived. When people see that, they're like, my goodness, really? A couple of questions as, as we kind of come to a close here. Verse 17 really sums it up well for the first half. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I want to ask you this question. Where are you today? Where is your heart in relationship to Jesus? God wants to do good through you. Sometimes I've found myself trying to do good on my own. And it takes God gently uh, patting me on the back of the head saying, I don't want you to do good on your own. I want to do good through you with my power, with my grace. Where, where are you today? Are you facing a challenging moment in family or in work, at home, friendships? Who in your life needs to see God's goodness, even though they may not deserve it today? If you are suffering for doing what's good, 
the text says you will be blessed. And I like the picture of even saying, if, if, if you're suffering for doing what's good, just rest in God. Just, just hand that to God and say, God, here this is. I don't know what to do with it. It's tough. But God, I want to honor you in this way and in this way and this way because that's what your word calls me to. So God, help me to rest in what you have given me. Where is God doing good through you this morning? Where does God want to do good through you this morning? Peter's command is simple, but it's hard. Do good even if you suffer for it. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we thank you for the chance to gather this morning to be reminded that you are good when there is nothing good in us. And yet, God, what hope we have that as you live and you dwell through us, God, we don't have to be good on our own. We just have to rest in the provision of Christ who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who, who suffered for sin once for all so that we can be made right with you. And Father, even as we now respond to you through singing, through prayer, through celebrating your goodness, God, God, be glorified in us. May the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into wonderful light, be an effect of our lives as we seek to love others as you have loved us, we pray for the sake of Jesus. And together we say, Amen.